This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here with Jürgen Marchukat, a professor of North American history at Universitat Erfurt, to talk about his new book, The Age of Fitness, How the Body Became a Sign of Success and Performance. Uh, we're doing this today to celebrate its translation into and publication in English with Polity Press this year, 2021. The book was originally published by S. Fischer in 2019 in German. Hello, Jürgen, and welcome. Hello, Jana, and thanks for having me. Uh, I'm very excited. Uh, it's good to talk to you this morning. Um, and how are you? How are things looking over there across the border? Um, I'm kind of okay, but it still feels COVID-like and the weather is not as nice as it should be in May. So um, I'm looking forward to the country opening up again and um, having the opportunity to travel to other places, see how they look like and enjoy some sunshine and um coffee with other real human beings <laughs> yeah actually sitting in a on a terrace talking to humans um listeners we have had a tough year in europe and uh you know our winters are long and dark and um summer's really important here and we haven't had much of a spring so this is this we we also might pre- behave a little with a little bit less regard than we ought very soon, I hope. I would just love to travel again. Do you know that there are other countries, Jürgen? Do you remember that? There's like Italy is a place that exists, for instance. Well, actually, yeah, Italy is a place that exists. Uh, but the last place I've been to uh, is the U.S. actually in early March last year. So oh. um, I was in the U.S. standing with friends of mine at their kitchen table in um in their house near Philadelphia, and um, that was when um, then-President Donald Trump announced the shutdown, and um, then we were wondering if this is going to be so big. I, I remember at that point in time, there were maybe 10 or 15 registered COVID cases in New York City, and the people were getting worried, and us coming from Europe, we said, oh, come on, 15 right. cases, forget about it. Well, and then the borders were, or immigration was stopped. And so um, actually on, on that Friday in early March, we uh, we left the country. We uh, we changed our flights, rescheduled our flights, got flights to go back to Germany because we thought, okay, when there is nobody coming in, there might be nobody, there might be no flights out yeah. or just a very few flights out. So, uh, so the U.S. is the last foreign country I've been to. Wow, that's amazing. I haven't been I haven't been home in forever. Um, I was in Morocco with my students mm-hmm. when I got this news when that that moment happened and Trump said we're shutting the country and I was like, oh mm-hmm. no. Yeah, it seems so long ago. And I remember that too. Oh come on, how bad is this? Like this won't be a big deal. We'll go home. It'll be a couple of weeks. Yeah. So much for yeah. that. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Um, I think it'll be an interesting thing for future historians to write about. 
as yes, well. Yes, yeah. yes, definitely. And um, I don't know how it is in the Netherlands, and um, and I actually also don't really know how it is in the U.S. But in Germany, the German Research Council. Um, has immediately given a lot of money to uh, all kinds of projects, not only medical projects, but also sociological, cultural studies projects to um, to do research on the pandemics and yeah. how, it, how it works, how it affects society and, and so on. So uh, it's definitely going to be a big topic and everybody is now talking about the... Uh, um, Influenza epidemics uh, in the U.S. at the end of World War One, and so on and so forth. So um, these topics are already resurfacing again in um, yeah, in historiography. Yeah, it's very interesting. We'll see some good work, and uh, I think it'll be interesting yeah. to see what happens as well. Yeah. That's what we can do as intellectuals, right? Is sit back and <laughs> when things happen to us, we can think of we can place them intellectually in our minds. Which, yes. which brings me to my very first question here. So my first task is always to sort out kind of how the current work fits in your particular intellectual trajectory. Uh, and that's not as easy here as it sometimes is, because if we look at your book length publications, uh, there's a couple things, you know. Um, so your first book uh, was Anti-Imperialism, Oil and the Special Relationship, the Nationalization of the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company in Iran, 51 to 54 uh, lit 1995. Okay. And then there's this shift, right? And then we see staged killing, a history of the death penalty from the 17th to the 19th centuries, Bolhau 2000, the history of the death penalty in North America from colonial period to the present day, back 2002. Okay. And then there's this other turn all of a sudden with your next book you do with Olaf Stieglitz, the history of masculinity, campus 2008. Um, and then you're back on your own with the social, the order of the social, Fathers and Families in American History Since 1770, Campus 2013, and then now The Age of Fitness. And I think I see a thread here. I think I see how these, uh, from the death penalty to masculinity and how this works, but I think it would be yep. much clearer coming from you. So help me make sense of the development of your intellectual interests, please. Um, yeah, um, I think you put it quite well. And um, I would say that maybe... Sometime in the 1990s, I got more and more interested in the body. And that was when um, a new field in the writing of history started to develop, and that was body history. I mean, there were people who had written the history of the body before the 1990s, but those were very few, very few people, uh, really exemplary studies. Um, but um, that uh, real trained historians began focusing on the body was not before the 1990s. And, and this topic kind of hooked me and I, uh, or I got hooked to this topic and um, and uh, so I started looking into body history in different fields, um, like, as you mentioned, um, my uh, death penalty studies uh, very much revolve around the significance of the body for how um, modern society is organized, how it, um, so to speak, arranges itself around a certain type of body, which then seems to... Um, require certain forms of punishment and transformations in the in how bodies are treated and so on and so forth and uh, this uh, then after a while i mean i've always been interested in sports um and i have always been a sports person myself 
So, and uh, then we started doing sports history, and this was also in cooperation with Olaf Stieglitz, um, my uh, colleague and uh, long-term partner in, in the writing of history. Um, and we got both interest in sports history, um, and he writes a different kind of sports history than I do, And um, but nevertheless. And so this started to develop, and then a, a certain projects came up, and... Um, and uh, that's how I finally ended up um, writing this history um, of fitness. And I mean, there are um, also more points um, that might be seen as important. We talked about the COVID-19 thing a while ago. And, um, and this is something that is happening in our present and that future historians will try to understand historically and that maybe then, you know, all these people looking um, at the influenza epidemic now um, are also historians whose interest in a certain topic and development is sparked by things happening in the present. And, um, and that's something that I find really um, important and um, in, inspiring, so to speak, to... Um, to live really in this world, in the present, and see what's going on in the present, and then to try to understand this historically. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's how we started, uh, as people who were interested in the body and so on, that's how we started working on fat. Um, I, um, I began uh, cooperating with a group of people, a group of scholars from various disciplines in the study of, um, of fat, of um um, our eating routines and habits, um, and uh, this is pretty closely tied. So, so this trying to understand fatness is closely tied to un trying to understand fitness, and um, and that's how I came as a body and sports historian interested in the present, trying to write a history of the present. Um, that's how I came to this uh, project and ended up uh, writing a history um, of fitness. All right. Uh, the, this follows. This makes sense. Yeah. Um, so the age of fitness begins with a description of the current fitness obsession that's fed by this massive industry. Um, and I'm making air quotes listeners around fitness. Um, and so you go on to say that Foucault would call it a dispositif, an era defining network of discourses and practices, institutions and things, buildings and infrastructure, administrative measures, political programs, and much more besides, end quote. Now that's a big claim. Can you explain this to our listeners? Mm-hmm. Um... One of the things that I'm really interested in and that I wanted to understand with this book and that I still want to understand is uh, that uh, fitness is more than the ability to succeed in sports. And success here might mean a lot of things. It does not necessarily mean winning a race or winning an Olympic medal. It might mean um, running my Friday evening run easily or whatever, you know, going on a nice bike ride and making this happen. Um, so it's, it's a very wide concept of success, but it means more than success in, in sports. It means kind of success in life. So we know there's a lot of research telling us that um, 
that uh, fit people have it um, or people coming across as fit, that it's easier for people coming across it as fit to, for instance, uh, succeed in our education system, to have success on the job market and so on and so forth. Um, we There's a lot of research telling us that um, uh, fit people are perceived as being more creative um, as being uh, more persistent and so on and so forth. So there is all this, um, 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 there are all these um, attitudes and qualities that are related to physical appearance. Um, and um, at the same time, we are being told that Fitness is important for everything, for our health, for our success in life, and so on, um, by a number of forces. Um, um, you mentioned government programs. There are, since about the 1970s, there is a number of, an increasing number of government progress uh, programs um, trying to get people to spend more time uh, doing sports, exercising, or um, to eat healthy. Um, you mentioned, uh, or I mentioned in the book, you quoted um, um, infrastructure, buildings. Um, when we leave our house, uh, I think if we, live in, if we live in some inner city area, it should not take more than two minutes until we walk by a fitness studio. Um, these are, somebody called them the cathedrals of our uh, modern age. So, um, so there are these places all over the place where we see people exercising. Um, uh, you refer to practices that are part of this, what Foucault, what I call with Foucault a dispositif. Uh, there are practices that are pretty important. So this means that we see all these people exercising, that we ourselves are told by um, our smartphones that we are supposed to make 10,000 steps a day. And uh, this is smart technology. They adjust to our routines. So when they notice that we walk way less than 10,000 10, steps, they lower the margin and try to make us walk 5,000 5, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So this has an impact on uh, impact on our practices. Um, uh, there is discourse. There is a lot of writings um, um, trying to explain to us how important this is. And uh, and then, of course, there is, uh, it, particularly in our age, uh, there's a lot of visual material mm -hmm. um, which we face, for instance, on social media. Just go on Instagram and you see that Instagram is obsessed with images of fit bodies. Um, but we also see them in a lot of magazines and so on and so forth. So what I want to say is that um, um, there is real. It's really a big uh, formation of all sorts of forces that has developed or kind of spins around this notion of that fitness is important for us. So, yeah, yeah, Maybe so much the to this and then yeah. It's hard to think of something that is as all-encompassing, right, that we see everywhere. And that seems to be really cross-cultural. I can talk about things that I see at home that everyone's obsessed with. Or, you know, there are these weird little Dutch things that, like, mm -hmm. strike me as this thing that all Dutch people are obsessed with. But, yeah, I mean, from the second I walk out of the street, um, walk out of my door on the street, there are 
there's a little, you know, we call it the a grown-up playground, which is like this mm-hmm. stuff, you know, right on where I walk my dog every day. It's absolutely everywhere. And then we'll talk more about this as we discuss the book further. But I'm thinking of like my morning yogurt is not a food stuff. It is a way, it is my goal to what did they say, gut health. I think it says that on the mm-hmm. package, right? Like mm-hmm. it's about health. Everything is overwhelming. Um, and you, I mean, you start your first chapter with the discussion of bike computers. Fitbit, mm-hmm. smartwatches, all these ways to aid in self-observation, which, you know, so not only then is it this, it's the zeitgeist of this era, but we, we bring it into our bodies, into our personal space. I can look at, you know, 15 things just here in my office that'll help me figure out whether or not I'm healthy and if I'm eating well and, you know, all these things. Um, but so it's about self-observation that then leads to self-improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, people can work on themselves. They can optimize their performance, right? So then the body and fitness is this microcosm of how people are meant to behave in a liberal society, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, um, that's wonderful that you're saying this because that's that's kind of, that, that's one reason why I started the first chapter, why I started the book with this bike computer. Um, it's because I wanted to, you know, pick up my readers at uh, my my potential readers, my my future readers. Um, I wanted to pick up my readers at a point of departure, at at a point at an op- with an observation that they all might share because it's all in our everyday lives and basically today so many people own smartphones. And um, and and we all have this stuff on our smartphones. And then, um, as you just said, there are so many devices around us, technologies that um, um, that are meant to, you know, they don't force us to do things, but they kind of um, um, subtly, more or less subtly push us or uh, tell us that it would be smart now to do certain things. They they sort of establish routines in our lives and, um, and they help us to monitor um, our own performance and our own, our own routines. And that's also pretty important because um, I think one of the, um, um, one of the very, powerful moments of fitness is that it's also it's it's self-conduct which is really really important and but this self-conduct is somehow it somehow relates to a number of external forces like for instance our smartphones telling us to our health apps telling us to make 5,000 steps a day, um, the yogurt company telling us that we should um, start with a healthy breakfast uh, into the day or uh, a video we um, might be um, watching. Um, okay, another reason, uh, and here is a confession, another reason for, um, for starting with a bike computer is that I'm a dedicated bike rider. So here's this this moment of self self observation again. So what do we do in our um, uh, in our daily life? What do we do when we um, when we exercise? You know, and there it is. It's everywhere. I'm thinking about my you know my phone. Who is actually? I mean, 
it's a little bit bossy. You're saying they don't tell us we should, but my, my phone actually does. My phone would be like, Hey, stand up. Um, but you know, there's also the other areas of fitness. I mean, my, I have Duolingo because I want to, it'll remind me to work on my Dutch every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a meditation app that stops and it's like, mm-hmm. why don't you sit and breathe? I mean, it's all of these things that are about, um, about how how to monitor ourselves in self-improvement. But then we get to this point, and I've pulled a quote here, for the autonomous and self-responsible individual is central to liberal societies. And self-responsibility means ensuring one's commitment and efficiency in every sphere of life. Those who manage themselves demonstrate their ability to take responsibility for society. Anyone wishing to be viewed as a successful individual and good member of society must be productive, reproductive, and ready to tackle challenges. One has to be hardworking, attractive, and strong. So, I mean, this is, it, it, it's about bettering yourself, but not just yourself, right? You become part of this whole. Um, you said be, being physically fit is a demonstration of societal fitness, and that works towards, this is kind of a hallmark of modernity, yeah? It's, it's what's happening in our, in our world right, right now, like how, how we're meant to exist in our liberal democracies. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Um, um, one point I try to make in the book is um, that fitness is closely tied to freedom. Um, and um, I love freedom, but at the same time, um, we are asked to use our freedom efficiently. Um, we are asked to use uh, to well what what I find really interesting and this is another thing I do as a historian I write a history of the present and of the last 50 years but uh, sometimes when I deem it necessary to understand where this history comes from so to speak I go back uh, I go further back and um, and this is um, I mean I, I think the most compelling um, way to put it um, um, has been achieved by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence from 1776 when he speaks of the, or they speak, uh, of the pursuit of happiness. So um, we are not, as human beings, endowed with the right to happiness, but we are endowed with the right to pursue happiness. So there is something active in this, some, something we are also asked to do. And it's, it's maybe not a duty, but it's clearly something we should do as good, free human beings. And, um, and, uh, and this sort of um, implies this, um, this understanding that uh, freedom is not just something that is given to us, but is something that we should use to the best of society, to the best of ourselves, which then is meant to be to the best of society. And um, but that's really difficult. It's really a difficult task, and that's why we have created all these things, um, um, reminding us of or remembering us uh, of of the fact that uh, we are supposed to make the best of our lives. Um, that's and and uh, these technologies are um, incredibly helpful um, in that regard. Um, um, before we had the smartphone, there were a lot of um, self-help books. Um, like the publication of self-help books uh, begins or or gains in- incredible momentum after the American Revolution. 
all sorts of books in the late 18th, particularly then early 19th century, telling people, trying to in provide instructions to people on how to live their lives in a free society so that this experiment of, um, of creating um, a, a free society, a society based, built on freedom, um, succeeds. And, um, and I'm not now, I'm not saying there is a straight line from self-help books to self <laughs> help books to our smartphones but um but what they both are are a means to help us to um to lead an efficient life as a free human beings um to have control um over our existence and thus become productive members of a society that revolves around these notions of freedom and um and competition so that we in the end are really able to pursue happiness um, uh, successfully. But the idea that there's a pursuit of happiness means we'll, we'll never get there, right? There's happiness is this, this moving target constantly, right? And you can always be more fit. You can mm -hmm. always be more productive. You can always be richer. You can always be, what is that? There's this phrase from the seventies though, that I, that still sticks in my head. You can never be too rich or too thin. And in mm -hmm. fact, you can be both of those things, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not a societal ideal we maintain. Yes, right. I mean, that's really important. And that's uh, what you just said about happiness is fully true for fitness. I mean, you can never reach what has been called by many people in the field, uh, in, in the fitness field, a total fitness. And, and the thing is that whenever you stop to exercise, yeah, your fitness decays. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know this. Uh, fitness disappears when we stop exercising, when we stop moving, when we stop working on us. I mean, it's a uh, it's a constant challenge, which uh, which keeps us going, and um, and and that's really um, um, uh, that's a crucial point of the whole story, yeah. right? Yeah, and that and I think the idea that fitness can be so in, all encompassing as well. Like I went to high school with a girl who's a bodybuilder. She's a professional bodybuilder, mm -hmm. and she's amazing, right? Obviously, and she spends like seven hours a day in the gym. That's her job. But recently, she started to talk about how she doesn't do enough like self care, whatever. Like she doesn't, you know, her Facebook persona is all these images of her looking amazing, but we've realized now she doesn't meditate enough. She's not taking mm -hmm. care of her internal like mental fitness. It's like, well, where does this end then? And I think, you know, there's kind of uh, your the sentence I just pulled, like right in the same paragraph, there's another quote I want to pull out, uh, which kind of sheds light on the other side of this, right? Literally, the kind of the ugly side, literally and metaphorically. Quoting here, fitness creates zones of marginality and exclusion. Mm -hmm. This is its regulatory and normative effect. Those who fail to conform to the ideal at play here, who are considered ill or physically impaired, or who are apparently neglecting to work on themselves enough to become and stay fit are marginalized and included. And I, I see here, so like by not taking care of yourself, by letting yourself go, by getting fat, and I so want to link fat and lazy in my mind, right? Which is obviously like a, a training that someone's demonstrating their lack of willingness to contribute to the process of themselves, but then that can also be broader, yeah? Um, yeah, and that's, I mean, uh, first of all, fitness creates many disappointments. Um, this uh, ideal of a constant improvement that uh, fitness implies and um, also um, um, implies always uh, contains the, the the possibility that we are not going to succeed in our endeavor to um, 
um, to improve ourselves and and uh, to pursue a happy and successful life. So uh, fitness creates a lot of disappointments. And then fitness also operates about this idea that we are responsible uh, for our success in our life because it's totally up to us, you know. And um, and we all know that it isn't. Right. That, that there are many forces that um, that have a strong influence on 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 our life path. And um, but nevertheless, this idea of fitness and autonomy uh, tells us that it's our responsibility. And um, and so um, so this then again means that uh, people who do not succeed or who do not succeed enough in this pursuit of happiness and, and what I call this pursuit of fitness yeah, um, seem to be responsible for their failure. They are considered responsible for their failure. And, and, and because, um, I mean, this fitness implies um, activity, agency, um, a constant, uh, constant endeavor. It it pairs easily with the a non-fitness pairs easily with the perception of laziness. Mm-hmm. So there is a really powerful and a deep moralizing tone to all this discourse of fitness and non-fitness. Um, so first of all, it's failure. And secondly, this failure it stands for is perceived as being your own fault, and um, and and you are the one who can change it, and you are the one who is responsible for changing it. And this again very well matches with this neoliberal discourse that sees us all as actors on markets in all realms of life and uh, and that um, uh, competition between actors and markets and that says that competition between actors on markets is the most powerful force uh, for a productive and successful way of in a productive and successful way of organizing society and and um, and yeah, and and that's where fitness is really marginalizing and excluding people, um, and that's and actually that's what what got us or got me so hooked on this topic on uh, of fitness. Um, um, when we started our conversation, we talked about how I got to this topic, and I said I um, uh, I worked with a group of people who were interested in understanding um, uh, fatness, and um, and at the beginning we started out with uh, seeing or try or understanding fitness and fatness as opposites. And on the one hand, they might be seen as opposites, but at the same time, they are revolving around the same thing and are perceived as, you know, two sides of the same metal or however you want to put it, because they all, they they both refer to a human being that is uh, in control of uh, themselves and and a human being and a society that is arranged and organized around human bodies um, uh, and and human beings' responsibility for how their bodies look like and, and as how productive they are. Um, perceived so it's basically more then we got more interested Mm -hmm. in how these two elements are connected and linked together and and linked together instead of uh, seeing them as um as opposites well right because there's a conscious linkage right between 
fitness consumption, production, reproduction, right? Which is, so fitness makes you a healthy, a person who could save the group in case of emergency, right? But fitness makes you attractive. And so you can Mm -hmm. physically attract and you can reproduce, which demonstrates your willingness to join. But a lot of productive is really about consumption, right? Um, You know, how are you consuming in a modern and late capitalism? Your production is related to how well you can consume. so, and, and there are a few places that are more obsessed with consumption than fitness, right? So buy a gym membership, buy a home gym, but also buy this protein bar and eat this healthfully. So the, this is such an excellent example of the kind of late stage capitalism, like this neoliberal where your fitness and your ability to, your your productive nature is really demonstrated by your ability to consume appropriately mm-hmm. in the marketplace, Mm-hmm. And and then I'm thinking about, you know, the way this marginalizes is like you you mentioned that the, some of the fattest people in the world are poor black women in, in the rural U.S., southern U.S. in particular, mm-hmm. you know, and there's so many reasons that feed into this. But there's then this allows for a p- place where you can just write these people off. Well, clearly, they don't even care about themselves. Yeah. So why should we? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah clearly. And, and that's that's one of the points I tried to make that. um um i don't know i um that so to speak structural forces discursive forces structural forces all these um things that influence how people can live their lives and um what the indiv- what individual opportunities are the conditions of possibility for mm-hmm. success are more or less ignored in this understanding of um, how we live our lives and what is important and and that a lot of this is kind of reduced to this idea of individual autonomy and um, and um, and this leads to after all, a, a neglect of um, of political responsibility for the forces that have an impact on how can people live their lives, um, um, and at the same time blames these people um, for not succeeding in this um, um, competitive system, um, and. Um, and for not consuming responsibly mm-hmm. enough, um, and uh, yeah, and, and at the same time, I mean, what I also find really interesting, and what I try to bring a, across in the book, is that at the same time, fitness itself develops as a huge uh, a market mm-hmm. um, of all sorts of things. You know, beginning with. Um, um, Items that we are meant to consume if we consume responsibly, uh, so certain types of food markets, and but then if we get closer to the topic, stuff like energy drinks mm-hmm. and so on, uh, certain types of vacations that we are meant to make, that we are sold, um, uh, uh, and then it goes on and on mm-hmm. and on to leg warmers, uh, <laughs> certain types of food. Fitness wear uh, to uh, carbon uh, frame bikes um, and so on and so forth. So this um, a massive market. Um, so these are there's a lot of um, ways how this idea of fitness connects to capitalism and um, uh, and consumption. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and you talk about spandex, right? It's the ultimate kind of right. I, 
I love spandex. <laughs> I love spandex because, and, and actually I thought when, when I came across this topic of spandex, I thought this might be a topic for a whole book, you know, because it's a, um, many historians now are writing uh, the history of matter and mm-hmm. um, of certain, you know, material things. And uh, if you're a historian of the body, spandex is wonderful. I mean, because spandex reveals nothing or reveals just a very little, but it at the same time um, not only shows, but emphasizes your uh, body shape. It shows every muscle, you know, but it also shows every, um, how do you say, um, every little piece of fat on your body. Yeah, all the cellulite. um, every bump yeah, every it shows how well your body is toned mm-hmm. or if it isn't it uh, and so on and so forth so spandex and and spandex has this flexibility and uh, i mean we live not only in the age of fitness but also of flexible capitalism mm-hmm. i mean fitness is also closely closely related to this idea of flexibility to be able to um, respond to certain challenges to be resilient Mm -hmm. this is another one of these big um, uh, terms that has come up recently that is as i think also related to fitness Um, Mm -hmm. and um, and and spandex you know a history of spandex could um, kind of unfold all these uh, topics and relations this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, that's wonderful, actually. And Spandex is another location for the constant critical uh, cultural criticism and cultural critical control of female bodies as well, right? Yes. There, there's yes, so definitely. many, like, how yeah. many lists of who shouldn't wear spandex right, yes. have you seen? Yeah. Also, and it's definitely, it's definitely historical. And that's also very important for me as a historian. I mean, this, all this, you know, um, I mean, there were fitness waves before the 1970s, and I addressed that in my book. And um, um, it would be really interesting to work more on the differences and similarities between the fitness wave in the late 19th, early 20th century and the fitness wave in the late 20th and early 21st century or um, or uh, to take a closer look at what fitness means in non-free societies, if there is anything like fitness um um, because it's you know it's not it's not only the neoliberal age that emphasizes the powerful body um um uh, and now i kind of lost my train of thought where did we take yeah i'm not sure yeah this spandex thing i i think it's um for me it's really important to emphasize that this is uh, a deeply historical, uh, historical mm-hmm. at the core, because I mean, it, this fitness gear starts to pop up in the 1970s, uh, the fitness wear, um, and it did not exist before this period in time. And yeah. also, you know, the idea for people to go for a run in the evening after a long day of hard work to, you know, mm-hmm. to get more relaxed, um, um, this idea did also not exist before the 1970s. 
No, I mean, people took like, you know, I'm thinking about like Kellogg's and the sanitariums or like people took kind of breaks. But what I'm thinking about what those women are wearing when they're eating, when they're chewing, masticating their food 50 times or whatever before they swallow, which is what, you know, is fitness there. It's a very different kind of item, right? You don't you don't have to have a special gear to go do anything. Um, yes, it's a, uh, it's a very different item. At the same time, there are moments of similarity. Uh, I mean, because people were kind of, um, I mean, one of the idea of the fit or one of the big issues of the fitness wave in the late 19th century was that people were seeing themselves as overwhelmed by modernity. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the one hand, body practices were seen as a counterforce against this um, overpowering modernity. And that's kind of similar today. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are saying our life is so stressful, so let's take a yoga class to relax. Um, But then in the very end, we relax to be more efficient at work on the next day. Mm -hmm. So, and that was kind of similar in the late 19th century that um, on the one hand uh, people felt overpowered by by all these forces and the speed of modern society and and fitness was sort of or exercise was sort of a way to escape Um, but at the same time it was a way for people to uh, make themselves um, to adjust to the demands of this new type of society and uh, succeed in this um, a competition that was at that point in time um, deeply racialized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you know, uh, yeah, okay. I've gotten so excited about this <laughs> that I've, I've let us, we're, we're nowhere near uh, my my original plan for this interview. I'm sorry. And we've gone a bit, I've jumped ahead as well. But let's, let's we're both historians, so let's do some of this history business. So you're even in, right in your second chapter, you take this much further back. Um, and the title is Fitness Trajectories of a Concept Since the 18th Century. So what, mm-hmm. you know, what you basically say here is over the course of the 18th century and coinciding, perhaps not coincidentally, with the formation of my own country of origin, we see a shift in the understanding of social, like a shift in social ideals. In the early modern world, one can recognize the ideal order that should be taken for granted as a moderate, of course, it was set and you fit in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then over the 18th century, this changes and we see the development of growth, personal and social. Can you explain, can you explain kind of this, can you give us a quick overview of the trajectory of this concept? Mm -hmm. Um, that's a really big question, of yeah. course, but yeah, I mean, um, um, we, um, uh, first of all, in the book, what I try to do is, uh, provide readers and also, you know, develop for myself a deeper understanding of, um, of where this notion of disconnection between fitness and freedom comes from. And, um, and this takes us back to enlightenment mm-hmm. thought and to the roughly spoken 18th, 18th century. Um, and uh, in the 18th century, we can see a fundamental transformation of how society is organized. Um, we might say, and this is really stereotypical now, the way I put it, um, um, we might say that... Um, until the age of revolution in the late 18th century, societies were by and large organized top down. So power came from the top 
Um, and uh, there was a king who was endowed with his power and might and influence and force by God and who, you know, told people who were lower in this rank, uh, in, in, in rank, what to do and, and how to live their lives. I mean, this is really simplifying, but in general, I think this idea that power was organized top down is really helpful. And, and this, this kind of changed in, uh, in the age of enlightenment in the 18th century. Uh, and then with the American and other revolutions in uh, France and other places in Europe and in Haiti, um, and then also in Latin America and so on and so forth, that that um, that uh, societies uh, came into existence that were conceptualized differently. Mm -hmm. And they said power is, so to speak, with the people. Every human being is endowed with the power to live their own life and, and people who are governing us are only uh, uh, endowed with power through the people so so the concept of power is not top down but it's bottom up mm -hmm. but this also means then at the same time and there's a lot of all this enlightenment writing kind of revolves around this topic um, that um, uh, we as human beings have the responsibility um, to live our own lives i mean it's 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 mm -hmm. not it's not only our liberty but it's also an obligation yeah, this isn't um, just a gift from God now. It's something that we exactly, have to earn. Exactly, right. exactly. We have to we have to take care of our own lives. We are responsible for our own lives, and um, uh, uh, and we have to, you know, see that um, that um, we pursue happiness successfully, and. Um, and this is, uh, I mean, and then this, this idea of the social contract comes up, mm -hmm. you know, that um, uh, people form a social contract um, uh, and um, provide a government with the power to safeguard their liberties and their freedom and so on and so forth. But at the bottom line, the power is in the people. And, and, um, and this, I mean, is strongly strongly relates to this idea of fitness uh, that does not yet exist in that moment of time but it actually begins to um, to develop in the early 19th century that there are more and more groups who start talking about gymnastics and uh, then towards the mid 19th uh, century um, this idea of um, keeping your body fit and healthy to be able to um, be a good and free citizen becomes more and more important. And um, but it's it's this idea of autonomy of the individual and of responsibility for our own lives that is sort of shaped mm -hmm. in this. 18th century Enlightenment discourse and um, yeah. Um, and then this, but the discourse, the important kind of the link with fitness here is that you don't just pursue happiness successfully, you pursue it properly, or you pursue it in a productive way. Yeah. And, and that's, that's how fitness fits in. It's a pun. Sorry, I think. Yeah, anyway. you're not, you're not supposed to be, you're not supposed to be selfish and you're not supposed to overdo it. Mm -hmm. You are supposed to always be kind of modest, um, um, and, and, and contribute, uh, 
voluntarily, that's pretty important, mm -hmm. voluntarily contribute to the well-being of society mm -hmm. by um, following your own interest. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really important. And this following your own interest has, you know, led into the right direction. And, um, and this direction is something that you yourself need to find. But, and, and here we get back to something we talked about in the beginning, that you yourself need to find the right way and, and, and the right intensity and so on. Um, but there are a number of forces who are helping you with this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not only the government, the king or yeah. whatever, which does not exist anymore. Um, it's not only the government, but it's so many other forces, mm -hmm. like, for instance, the self-help books we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, it's um, uh, teachings by, mm -hmm. by uh, experts. So this notion of expertise mm -hmm. becomes more and more important um, over the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, Moralists, Jane yes. Addams, right? Because yes. it's not just about fat. It's also about alcohol alcoholism, sloth. Yes. Yes, exactly, exactly. Stay away from the bad things. Not mm -hmm. only you're not only supposed to do the good things, but at the same time, stay away from the bad things. Um, um, and um, yeah, and and that's something that develops since the late 18th century. And it's of course, I mean, this topic is um, there is a whole library of books trying to understand what is going on here and. I thought I have to at least write a chapter to sort of build the ground on 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 for the analysis of fitness that in our present um, um, that I want to do. Um, yeah, and then I mean another important historical trajectory is competition. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is where I go back to Darwin. Um, and I mean, competition was not invented by Darwin. There was competition. I mean, Adam mm -hmm. Smith's book on the wealth of nations and Adam Smith is considered as something like the founding father of national economy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, this is also from 70. It's published in 1776. Um, but what changes with uh, Darwin's books on the origin of species is that uh, competition is sort of provided with um, he explains competition as a natural force. So that's just the way it is, and uh, and and that's pretty important. I think the yeah. significance of competition for understanding how societies and how human life—I mean, this really connects individual life, individual existence, and survival with how societies operate. Um, the net and and the natural way to to do this is competition. Sure. Um, yeah, because there's not enough for everyone. There just isn't. So some exactly. of us are going to be winners. They're going to be losers. Exactly. Are you ready to be the winner? Yes. Yeah. I mean, and you invoke here uh, again, I mean, then this, this invokes as well, and you specifically do it in your book, the idea of bio biopolitics and biopower, mm -hmm. um, right? That there are some, some people are more fit than others. They're more mm -hmm. equal than others. Right. And. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In particular, I mean, what biopower also implies is the understanding that uh, bio, so, so to speak, human existence, mm -hmm. um, biology. And, and biology and the population. And then, as I would say, in a maybe simplifying manner, the body 
are uh, the body as an individual body, but also as a collective body of people. And that's something we've been talking about, you and me, all the time now, this relation between the individual fitness and, and the collective idea of a society built on autonomous and responsible selves, um, so that this body uh, takes center stage um, uh, in modern society and uh, that modern society very much revolves around um, organize, um, revolves around um, uh, the body and the population and, around, uh, and and around health and the idea of productivity that is very much related to health um, uh, and the idea also of growth, um, the growth of people and uh, things and um, uh, productivity and improvement and this constant endeavor to, right. yeah. And um, so fitness, if you, if you, I mean, I think we might say that fitness is is really exemplary for this um, understanding of a society um, very much um, built on an understanding of biopower. Of um, right. Yeah. Oh, it's a perfect locus for this discussion. Um, and then your your next chapter, working, you really link this into the corporate project as well, the modern like ideal. Um, and the corporations get involved in health and fitness and allowing busy people, right, the opportunity for what we would call self-care, which is such an interesting yeah. thing while at work. But of course, it's not that altruistic or like it's 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 a part of a broader project. Yes. Um yeah, it's a new way of organizing our economy in the age of um, flexible capitalism. Um, um, this idea that um, um, so flexible capitalism requires flexible people and requires fit and healthy people who autonomously take care of um, what is seen as best for them. Mm-hmm. And um, so, um, uh, companies uh, and and particularly big corporations um, um, start um, providing infrastructure to their workforce to uh, work on the improvement of their own bodies. So uh, in the 1950s, there was this saying of a uh, of a three martini lunch. So mm-hmm. when people went to lunch, they had a couple of martinis and and relaxed, and uh, and the rest of the day was your friend. And uh, but uh, in the <laughs> 1970s, the age of the three martini lunch was over. And um, what is uh, what I find uh, significant here is, I mean, uh, there were big corporations who provided a whole infrastructure for their workforce in the 19th century, but that was more in a patriarchal manner. Mm-hmm. They tried yeah. to exert control over their workforce, and this is really different in the 1970s and 1980s when this thing that is called corporate fitness uh, starts. Um, what corporations then try to do is um, um, provide um, the means to their workforce, to to their management and other people, mostly actually mostly white collar um, uh, workers, um, uh, provide the means to them to uh, develop um, an initiative and. Um, and uh, start sports and fitness projects in the company and um, and thus take good care of themselves. So the understanding then also is that the days of the three martini lunches are over and you better go and do some exercise in your um, 
uh, in your lunch break, or you meet with your bodies, with, with your colleagues from work um, uh, after um, after work to, you know, to go for a bike ride or go for a run or whatever. And, uh, um, and that's a very um, important and powerful um, development in in the 1970s and 1980s and in the years after. And then all this thing starts that they start to organize charity races in which everyone participates. And this event culture with company teams participating in the New York Marathon and so on and so forth. So what they try to do is develop a structure that motivates um, um, their people to... Um, to work on their bodies. And the idea behind that is um, um, that um, that fit people, uh, and, and that's kind of a quote. I'm, I'm trying to remember now from a, um, a manager in the 1980s that fit people do not only look better, but they work better and they are more creative and more persistent. And, uh, and they climb the ladder in the company hierarchy farther than other, uh, um, faster than other people do. So, um, so the idea is that um, working on yourself and your body and your fitness is of benefit to everyone. It's of benefit to the company and it's of benefit to the people. And, and um, companies started to provide a number of incentives. This now is a marketing tool for companies, right? Yes. My my partner works for a, a tech firm, and they're rated as one of the best places to work repeatedly in the tech world. And part of it is they their headquarters has a gym, and they offer yoga classes, and they bring farmers markets into the office so you can yes. eat healthy. Like what? Yes. You know, it's like, and I, you know, the thing I I find really difficult is that this is really good. I mean, I like it. Sure. They, they, they bring good food into the company. They provide people with the ability to to do some exercise and so on. So it's really it's really a plus for uh, for a company, and um, and it's also some something that is really um, hard to um, to criticize. Um, sure. Like, who doesn't want yoga classes for free at lunch? Right? Exactly. And who does not want to be healthy? I mean, right. that's a point. But at the same time, it's um, highly normative. It creates disappointment. It uh, it's a marketing tool, and and it's a way to um, to make us more efficient, mm -hmm. and also a way to make us more attached to the company. And that's also what I mean by, or what maybe Foucault means um, by uh, by using the term, the concept of a dispositif. I mean. It's values that we or that most people or that successful people uh, share. Oh, yeah, successful people. Yeah, but we, yeah. The, the thing is we, we share these values mm. that this company stands for. Yeah? It's, um, so it's, uh, I don't know the English term, it's, you know, pervading insidious i think is the one you yeah, want insidious. Yeah. this this is how i it, it feels insidious and it feels like i mean like lean companies lean corporate lean people make for lean corporations make yes. for fat profits yes but yeah but at the well, same that's time nice, that's nicely put i i should have used that sentence lean companies make for fat profits <laughs> <laughs> next time <laughs> next time you, you just you know cite me um, and, but then there's, the, the, but it like, and it further demonstrates kind of these class differences that we see, particularly in the U.S. It's less of a problem in Europe, 
but you know, who gets to be fit? It's expensive. Being fit takes a lot of time and money and blue collar workers and people who actually labor don't have the energy, don't have like, they want to go and have a drink and possibly, Oh God forbid, a cigarette after work, you know? And then that becomes a moral failing as well as a physical failing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. And and what is also, um, I mean, as a historian, what, what, what I also observed is that fitness culture uh, very much speaks to white-collar people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also in the late 19th century, so, and the white, in, in the late 19th century, the white-collar worker um, becomes one of the major problems in this um um, competition between the races, as it was called back mm-hmm. then, because the white-collar worker was mostly white and male, and his body was weakening because he did not use his body for right. work. And so um, so the idea is that we need an alternative to make this body fit. So, um, and this was one of the, so, so fitness... And the focus of fitness was in the beginning very much um, the white male office clerk and worker and manager as a class. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was very much the one who was spoken to in that um, uh, fitness discourse. And um, so it barely spoke to uh, blue-collar workers because the assumption was that they are keeping their bodies fit at work, which Mm -hmm. the white-collar workers did not do. Right. And, you know, and in in this Darwinian sense of competition, then who's going to be more prepared? Who's more prepared? Who's who's stronger? Like, who's fitter becomes uh, this question of survival. You know, and I think the demonstration of class actually comes through as well in your next chapter, Having Sex, where you talk about the reproductive body as a locus for upgrade culture. Um, and I think the, 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 the Viagra is just a perfect example of what you talk about here. So if you could just kind of riff on the significance of Viagra for our listeners for a minute, that would be great. Um. I personally find that this is a complicated chapter because it leads the fitness argument in a slightly different direction. And actually what I, so when I conceptualized the book, I um, I was wondering what good citizenship meant. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you kind of mentioned that in the beginning in passing that good citizenship meant means being productive, being reproductive, and um, so to speak, being ready to put up a fight. So mm-hmm. the ability to defend yourself and your country. Um, those are three major criteria for good citizenship, which then again means I need to have a, I need to have a chapter on sex. That's why I have chapters on work, I have chap- a chapter on sex, and then I wanted to write a chapter that somehow relates to the military, and somehow when writing this chapter, it turned out that the heroic is maybe something like the centerpiece that I could construct this chapter around. So um, so first thing is I, I need a chapter on sex to make my point. Mm-hmm. Um, but then second thing is I cannot write on fitness without writing on doping. So, um, oh, yeah. Right. Because fitness uh, means uh, constant exercise, constant work on yourself, but it also means to appear 
to appear as if you're, I mean, it means achievement. So to come across as if you are constantly working on yourself. And, um, and, and Viagra is like maybe the perfect thing to combine this um, relevance of sex in the fitness discourse to, um, to come across as potent, as um, um, potentially reproductive, um, even though um, sex does not necessarily mean reproduction anymore and potency does not necessarily mean reproductive ability anymore. So this is then became really complicated. But what this chapter or what um, Viagra um, allowed me to do was uh, was to bring this idea of doping. And, and when I'm speaking of doping, I mean doping in our everyday life. I don't mean necessarily doping in high performance sports, right, but, you know, popping a pill to work a little longer, to... Um, uh, relax a little better or uh, or uh, uh, pop a pill to have sex a little longer. Um, and uh, so uh, uh, Viagra allowed me to write on sex on the one side and this idea of doping and body enhancement through external forces. Mm-hmm. Great, yeah. Which, um, and, and there's this idea too of like performance enhancement as like, yeah. Right, it, it, as every facet of your life is about performance enhancement. Yeah, you don't yeah, yeah. just you're, you don't just lift more things, right? You have sex longer and and later in life. And there's you also talk a lot here about um, aging and um, putting that off. And if if mm-hmm. senescence is the point when you're no longer productive, then how many ways can we push senescence mm-hmm. off as long as possible? Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. Exactly. So age, aging is very important in this whole fitness discourse. Um, I would say that in the, in the beginning of this fitness discourse, gaining when, when this fitness discourse gained power and, and the fitness dispositive, the practices and so on, uh, uh, one really important group is middle-aged men. Mm. Um, when they, as I, I read a lot of running magazines from the 1970s. I used them as one of my sources, and that was great fun to read these magazines. And I particularly liked the reading letters in these magazines and most letters that were written to these magazines, or I have to say most letters that were published by these magazines were by men in their 40s who start feeling age, who start to feel that their body kind of gets weaker, is not as strong as it used to be, and so on and so forth. And um, and uh, and uh, uh, older men, not necessarily in their 40s in the beginning, but more in their 60s and 70s, um, um, were the major target group of uh, Viagra in the beginning, but only in the very beginning. And it was this idea of healthy aging um, that was behind this um, whole marketing uh, and Viagra concept and healthy aging meant that... Um, and I'm now simplifying again, but that uh, every symptom of becoming older is kind of transformed into a disease and that we need mm-hmm. a remedy for this disease. And if we can't uh, compensate this through training and exercise, um, then we need to invent pills who help us to compensate 
state for this. And um, and uh, so so the first um, uh, target group were men of that age, um, uh, but then um, uh, really uh, uh, rapidly the target group widened because there were um, actually studies on. Um, uh, what was by then called um, um, ir- um, how is it called um, erective uh, erectile erect- dysfunction? Right, erectile. Yeah. It was erect called erectile dysfunction and not impotence anymore. Right. And um, uh, erectile dysfunction was uh, something that um, happened to almost every man at some point in time beyond the age of forty. So this widened the mm-hmm. target group for uh, Viagra immensely. And here we are again back to the economic interest in the fitness industry. If we want to call this as a part of the fitness industry, yeah. Um, but then everyone knew from the very beginning that this also spoke to men younger than 40, you know, who like to party. And I mean, it was mm-hmm. the 1990s and um, and then who, who wanted to be able to perform even after a long and hard night. Um, so it's kind of part of the 1990s, uh, early 21st century right. culture. Um, which also sees this, um, what historians and sociologists call the remasculinization of this culture. Um, I mean, it's mm-hmm. a uh, it's a deeply male understanding of what sex means that is expressed through Viagra, um, and um, and I had the I, I was hoping to get at all this through this chapter on um, on Viagra. So um, sex, reproductivity, the mm, masculinization, remasculinization of the, the discourse and practice, uh, the discourse on sex um, uh, and the doping um, mm-hmm. doping thing and and the age thing, which is uh, uh, really important in the whole yeah, this. The pathologizing of age, um, yeah. right? But this is another place where, like, age is a great pathology. Age will kill you. Like, age is a pathology. Eventually, it is the end, right? I mean, I, I not everything needs a, a pill, but at the same time, I'm a fifty year old. Parts of me hurt all the time, right? Like, it aging is tough, and if you can make it a little easier. But there, mm-hmm. there are forces at work here that, uh, you know, that are, are more than just that simplistic kind of take. Mm-hmm. And the masculinity mm-hmm. issue is something also you take up in the next chapter, fighting, mm-hmm. uh, which is this great com- about like the mer- the martial implications of fitness mm-hmm. and the national obsession with fitness. Um, and, you know, the idea that someone becomes a hero by finishing yep. a 5K. So, like, how does fitness allow us to turn every day into like a battle for betterment? Um, to be a hero means to achieve something really extraordinary Um, something that seems to be beyond human capacity and I noticed that many of these fitness events for instance or fitness studios operate through the concept of the heroic because um, fitness working on ourselves allows us to 
not only reach our limits, but transcend our limits. And to achieve thus achieve something really heroic um, and um, or what is seen as heroic. And um, there are fitness studios that operate on their web pages, even with uh, you know the way they put is uh, put it is that they they tell you if you exercise in our studio, you achieve something that will be beyond the human uh, limits or whatever. So it makes you at least a, a, a semi, a demigod, you know. Um, and and that's also um, many of these uh, not necessarily charity runs. This notion of charity, a charity run does not really exist in Germany. In Germany, we call it um, every man's or every woman's run, yeah, where... Where the where I I think in the book it says the average Joe, mm-hmm. um, so but you know there are thousands of people participating in these events and um, and what they try to tell us is that you you mentioned the five k run yeah if you run this five k run if you run this ten k run if you succeed in this marathon and succeeding here means you know finishing um, then yeah. you are a real hero because you achieved something in your life. Yeah, and um, and it's very personalized. This is, this yes, is something obviously that many people buy uh, buy into. Um, and even though we know today that, uh, for instance, in the New the, the New York Marathon, I think since 2010 or since two, two, 2013, it always had more than fifty thousand finishers. So, but um, uh, nevertheless. Um, uh, it makes me uh, uh, heroic and extraordinary in my achievement. That's the impression it creates, mm-hmm. and that's that's so to speak the promise it it operates um, it operates through. And this is a whole culture that sort of develops around this understanding of the heroic. And then what I found really striking is that in the twenty first century it developed a more and more military tone. There are more and more um, fitness events that clearly have a military connotation. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, boot camps, you go to fitness boot camps. There are fitness boot camps, uh, CrossFit uh, trainings, and then there are certain kind of races that, res- that very much resemble military training um, um, uh, efforts. And um, and and they also very much operate um, over this idea of that you make yourself um, that you can turn yourself into a real hero um, by participating and by finishing this uh, in this event. You know, one of the things that um, I was thinking about when I read this chapter is that then you get your you, your t shirt. You get a t- in yes. the U.S. You get a T-shirt that says yes. you took part in this, and so there's this also a performative kind of there's such a like this nature of being, you know, much like spandex. The other thing about athleisure is you don't know, I'm probably just grabbing coffee with my friends, but I could be on my way back from the gym or on my mm-hmm. way to the gym, right? You're always ready to work out. And mm-hmm. there's a there's something very performative and very showy about that. Yes, that- it's, 
it's that identity building thing mm. that I, I uh, it, it contributes to shaping a certain fitness identity mm. uh, that you are part um, of a group and that you at the same time you yourself are a person that sort of um, uh, represents and and literally embodies um, a certain life uh, a certain lifestyle and a certain culture and a certain way of being and that's actually also what many people in these readers letters that I talked about a minute ago write about they write about how they transformed how they changed uh, uh, from the life of laziness to the life of fitness. And this not only meant taking up another habit, like, uh, you know, going out for a run on every Friday evening, but it meant changing my whole life and becoming a different person. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a better person, right? There's that redemptive thing. Yes, and then it, it is, you know, it is kind of, I don't know if I should say sold, but it's uh, it comes across yeah, so. as highly individualistic, at mm -hmm. least um, as a as a singular achievement. Mm -hmm. um, one a, a German a German sociologist Andreas Reckwitz, and I'm sure his work has been translated into English. He says we live in a culture of singularity. Mm -hmm. And uh, singularity means that, uh, ooh, how do I bring that across it? Um, um, it means that we can all kind of do the same, mm -hmm. buy the same, drink the same, do the same, wear the same tattoos on our bodies, <laughs> but um, experience this as a highly individual thing which brings across that we are a singular um that there right. is no one else like us you That's are everyone is point. yes yeah. everyone's okay. an individual yes, right but like, in our individuality we are all not the same but we like follow the same trajectories yeah within in, in within boundaries that are absolutely acceptable Right. Which even with tattooing, right. Tattooing on your shoulder, fine. Tattooing on your face. Whoa. You know, like <laughs> we have these, so we, you know, there's still like within these boundaries and your last chapter, which we just do not like, we don't have time to talk about. And we've really gotten to a lot of it anyway, but you push, you talk about the, uh, the minor cultural pushback of this against con mm -hmm. compulsory able-bodiedness. Um, and the idea that the fitness um, and the obsession with fitness creates a space where people who are um, un unfit, you know, you're not just not fit, you are unfit in this really specific way. Mm. <laughs> um, and actually, it's reminiscent of the queer theory influenced work on disability that I'm, I'm reading a lot of, too. Um, yes, so it's, it's influenced by uh, it's influenced by. By this train of thought. Yeah. You know, yeah, you, you, you know, you cite Judith Butler, but I mean, some other stuff in here as well. And I think that's kind of part of our takeaway for our listeners. So I said, we don't have time to talk about it, but we, okay, let's talk about it. Okay. So, um, I mean, just my last question then, this really is like, it's you, it's a conclusion, your final chapter. Um, even though you bring up this new, the mm -hmm. new stuff about compulsory able-bodiedness and the obsession with fitness. Um, but it's a place where we could really hammer home kind of the takeaway. So, you know, my last substantive question for you, I guess, is what is your overarching argument, <laughs> in, you know, in a couple senses? Mm. It's, it's a terrible question. Um, it's a, it's mean. I'm sorry, but it's. Mm. 
Um, what I uh, what I try to do in this last chapter is um, not only point out that uh, very many people are left out mm-hmm. in this culture of fitness and are marginalized, but at the same time, and you mentioned this in passing, that they are fighting back. So that there is uh, a, a lot of agency on their side, and um, but that it's really difficult because this um, uh, culture of fitness is so powerful that um, that even when we try to argue against it and and oppose it, that then many of these people define themselves through their opposition. To this mm-hmm. culture of fitness, which then again speaks for the how forceful this culture of fitness is, because it makes people define themselves in contradiction to this culture, and and it's so it's really hard to get out of this. And and um, and but what I also try to say is um, um, that fitness is not, or that movement is not all bad, and that there is also a lot of pleasure to it mm. and um but what is my overarching argument <laughs> um the book you know we, you, you've, you've given me this you've given us all your overarching argument right the idea that and there's a dialectic that's going on um with like personal achievement and a, yes. and a social uh, kind of the social pr- the the social systems that push us into that I think is one of yes. your more interesting yes. arguments yeah 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 thank you thank you for summarizing it <laughs> oh it's great. god I love the book I'm sure you can tell I, I never keep anyone for 80 minutes I'm sorry I just can't stop talking to you about it um but I'm, I'm glad you like it and I'm really grateful for your interest in my work I mean I've been spending a lot of time with this and it's so nice to um to see that people are interested in it it's a really overwhelming experience well you know I got it because our editor-in-chief wrote me and said, I just have been reading this book and it's it's like, it's my current favorite book. You've got to get in touch with this author. And I was like, yes, I do. Uh, and I, I absolutely love it. So what's next? This is my final question. What are you working on now? What are you, what are we going to see next from you? Um, to be honest, I'm not sure. Um, I think um, I'm currently part of two research groups um, and one group works on voluntariness. And this is for me, it's not for everyone in the group, but for me, it's related to fitness because um, we briefly talked about the power of fitness and, and the power of fitness is to, to, you know, convince us to voluntarily do things that are meant to be good for us. And I'm really interested in, in, in what voluntariness means, how voluntary, voluntary behavior really is, yeah, or to what extent cool. it is grounded in certain paradigms and also conditions of possibility for doing things or not doing things. So, so that is something I'm really interested in. And another, another thing is, is something that comes across kind of different, um, um, it's it's a research group on property um, and the transformation of property. So um, I hope that everyone buys books, buys my book. But in general, um, we think that our culture of property is changing. Um, it's not so much about ownership anymore, but it's about the right to use things. Mm-hmm. 
So you live in Amsterdam, right? Um, so I guess in Amsterdam, less people own cars today than maybe a while ago. But, pe but people, so to speak, buy the right to use a car whenever they want to use it by being members of a car sharing company. Absolutely. Same um, with I have music. One. Yes. Same with, same with music. Who buys yeah. CDs anymore? People are members in Spotify. They mm -hmm. buy their Spotify account. So we buy the right to live and so on. So there mm -hmm. is a certain transformation of property. And, and in this group, we work on, on property and how it changes. And then as a historian, I'm looking at different transformations of property rights. And, and, and here comes the body. Um, I'm looking at slavery and the end of slavery and the ownership of your own body. And what I'm particularly interested in is in uh, slaves who succeeded in saving money and buying themselves. Mm -hmm. So they buy, so to speak, the right to their own body. Mm -hmm. um, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I don't know yet how this relates to fitness, um, but so these are, so to speak, the two fields that I, but I, I don't know what, uh, how this is going to develop with regard right. to my, my personal um, productivity. Yeah, where that's going to go will be interesting. Yeah. So many good questions, though. Yeah, and I think, I mean, yeah, I don't know how you connect these, like how this all connects to your work either. But I think about, you know, scarcity and uh, how... Uh, how property and, uh, is was so reflective of that. You know, there was a period of time where you couldn't own anything. Um, and now we don't need to own anything because we assume there'll never be scarcity again. Right? Mm -hmm. We're going to have yeah, what yeah. we need forever. Yeah. 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 Scar uh, the scarcity is a very, is a very important uh, uh, topic in this field. And um, yeah, scarcity, pop, uh, uh, poverty, class difference um, yeah, is, sure. um, is, is very important again. Um yeah, yeah, poor people want nothing to do with Marie Kondo. Right? That yeah. is just <laughs> does it bring me joy? I don't know. Food, you know, like mm. yeah, that's that's very interesting. Mm. Oh, cool. I'm so excited about this like future work you're doing. That'll be great. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh once again, thanks so much for your time. And I uh, look forward to talking to you when we see these next works come out. Thanks you. Thank you so much. Um, it was great being with you. 